Before we do the New Testament reading today, please bow your heads with me for prayer for illumination. Gracious provider, as the eyes of every creature look to you for food, we turn the eyes of our hearts to your Son, the bread of life. Open your hand, O Lord, and satisfy us once again with him. Turn your face again toward us in love as we turn our eyes toward Jesus in love. Send your spirit to create faith in those who have none and renew the faith of those who do. Chase away the wickedness that remains in us. Be pleased with our meditations on your word and inspire in us unending praises that are worthy of your wondrous love and your mighty deeds. For Christ, our Savior's sake. Amen. The New Testament reading today is taken from Book James, chapter 1, verse 2 to 18. Uh, you can find the scripture in um, page 1213. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because, having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. This is the word of the Lord. Our Old Testament lesson today is from the book of Ruth and the tail end now of the first chapter, verses 19 through 22. If you're joining us for the first time in our meditations on what we're calling Ruth's Gospel, uh, you should know this, that 
There was a famine in the land of Judah, and from Bethlehem came Elimelech and his wife Naomi, and their two sons, Malon and Kilian, and they went to Moab for food. But there in, in Moab, all three of these men died, and now Naomi and Ruth, who has committed to Naomi and to Naomi's God and to her people, they are returning to Bethlehem once there was the beginning of a harvest. So we pick up now with verse 19. Let's hear God's word. So the two women, this is again Ruth and Naomi, went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. At the end of U.S. President Barack Obama's presidency, someone put two photographs of him on the internet right next to each other. And one of these photographs was taken at his inauguration, and the second photograph was taken eight years later at the inauguration of his successor. And President Obama was standing in the same spot on the U.S. Capitol steps in both pictures. But here's the thing. On his first day on the job, he was dead serious. He looked like this. But then on his last day, in that same spot, eight years later, the picture shows him laughing and smiling and cheerful. And the caption, of course, underneath this before and after photo said, quote, that feeling when you realize it's not your problem anymore. The other before and after pictures that I saw of President Obama showed him first in 2008 with black hair, almost looking too young and too cool to be the leader of a country. And then the second photo in 2016 showed him, of course, with what? With gray hair, a full head of looking like a legitimate middle-aged man. The job, of course, makes you age, doesn't it? faster than you would otherwise. In a much less significant sense, I went through a period of, of tough days myself for a couple of years, a sorrowful period of my ministry. And during that period, I changed a lot too. I think I did get grayer. But apart from physical appearance, I became introverted instead of extroverted. Instead of my old levity and happy-go-lucky sort of personality, I kind of carried around a a heaviness, a sadness about me for a while. And my wife kind of looked at me like, who is this guy? This is not the person that I married. And I just want you to hold on to these 
two illustrations for a moment and they'll make sense in just a minute. When Naomi and Ruth arrive in Bethlehem, what happens to summarize our passage? They first, they create a stir. And after they do, Naomi speaks up and we might say she stirs the pot with her words. And then our narrator gets the last words and says uh, something that's meant to give us a stirring of hope as we turn to chapter two next week. So let's look at these three things, shall we? Naomi and Ruth create a stir. Naomi stirs the pot and the narrator gives us a stirring of hope. Creating a stir, stirring the pot, a stirring of hope. So first then, creating a stir. Verse 19 especially, they arrive at Bethlehem, the whole town is stirred because of them. And the women ask, can this be Naomi? The reason, of course, that Naomi creates such a stir is that she has become almost unrecognizable to the people that she used to live with. And of course, there's a physical element to this. She's just gotten older. Time has passed. But for her, this has also been a time of deep sorrow and struggle and lots of tears. And so like the president, she's aged a lot. But like me in that period of suffering, there was something beyond mere age at work. Suffering can make you look a little bit ragged. Can this be Naomi? Now, no you is ever really the same person from year to year, biologically or psychologically. No matter what life brings your way, you're going to change. But the point here is that, boy, do you change when you suffer. But there's an even more profound sense here in which Naomi has become, to her fellow Bethlehemites, unrecognizable. She is walking into her hometown without who? Without her husband, Elimelech. Without her two sons, Malon and Kilian. And now remember that in her culture, a woman's status was tied to the men that she was tied with. And just five verses into this story in the book of Ruth, all of the men around Naomi are dead and gone, off the stage. And when these women of Bethlehem see Naomi arrive, what are they thinking? There's probably a mixture of surprise, of pity, but also, I would guess, a little bit of revulsion. What do I mean by this? Why revulsion? Well, these women... They look at Naomi, and they can see themselves in her experience. If she can end up manless, husbandless, sonless, in a world that depends on men, this could happen to us too. We could become unrecognizable after years of sorrow and loss and death take their toll on us. No one says it, but surely, at least subconsciously, they're thinking it this could happen to her, it could happen to me. When our suffering, or when the suffering of someone else that's close to us, confronts us, as it did these women in Bethlehem, with our own mortality, our own vulnerability, it creates a stir, doesn't it? Hopefully for us, it's more than a stir of gossip. Oh, can you believe that this happened to them? Hopefully it stirs our hearts and our souls. 
Hopefully it makes us say, look, my life is short. I don't want to waste my breath. I don't want to waste anyone's time with a life that's lived that they don't need. Life is fleeting and short. Are we going to try to see who can die with the most toys? Are we going to ignore the fact of our coming death? Are we going to fight death? Or are we going to consecrate ourselves to reserve our short and immortal lives exclusively for a cause that has no end? For a movement that has resurrection and immortality right at its center. So when God creates a stir in our experience, the question for us is, will we respond with self-preservation or with devotion? The clock is ticking for all of us, so let's not waste our time. And the only way to not waste our time is to ask the Lord Jesus, the Lord of resurrection, to take our life, to take our moments and our days, and to do something with them that is of eternal significance. And for now, Ruth is precisely our guide for how to do this and how to do it right. The Lord is using the experience that you are having along with the teaching of his word right now to create a stir in you. And the question is, what are you going to do about it? So, creating a stir. Secondly, stirring the pot. The people of Bethlehem respond to Ruth and Naomi showing up. They ask, can it be Naomi? And Naomi comes right back with her speech, doesn't she? Now, Naomi may not hear exactly what these women are saying about her as she approaches, as she walks into town, but she can hear them say her name, and she can hear the stunned disbelief in what they're saying. And so right away, she says what? Verse 20, essentially, look, I don't want to hear you call me Naomi anymore. That name means pleasant. And I can tell you this, I am not pleasant. My life isn't pleasant. My relationship with God has not been pleasant. When you greet me in the market, when you see me walking down the streets, you call me this. You call me Mara which means bitter. Why? Because the Almighty has made my life bitter. Verse 21, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord, the Almighty, has afflicted or or testified against me. God has, she's saying, God has wrecked my life. And I'm not happy about it. Naomi, in her grief, says, I've come back utterly empty. And she's forgetting, of course, the fact that Ruth, who has just committed her whole life to her and to her God and to her people, is standing next to her. That's still emptiness for Naomi. The women notice Ruth, it seems like, but they don't ask any questions about her. Who's this woman that's with you? Naomi awkwardly doesn't introduce Ruth or even explain who she is. So here's Ruth's big welcome into Bethlehem, her chosen land. Kind of awful, huh? And Naomi says in so many words, I'm back. Yep, I'm going to come back to church after all these years, she says. But look, don't expect me to be the smiling 
old, cute Sunday school teacher lady who gets the children together and tells them, look, smile because God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's just not me, Naomi says. And so she stirs the pot. She says what she's thinking. And this is kind of a depressing homecoming parade, isn't it? For her. Now back to our question. How is Ruth our guide here when things get stirred up in our lives and in our hearts? How does Ruth, in the face of death, in spite of sorrow all around us and in our souls perhaps, how does Ruth show us how to commit our lives to something that outlasts our sorrows and even outlasts our deaths? Well, look what she has done here. Ruth commits herself, doesn't she? And she stays committed to a woman who at least right now is so, uh, so depressed and discouraged that she can't even appreciate her companion. Ruth commits and stays committed to someone who doesn't even introduce her to her new neighbors. Ruth commits and stays committed to a person, or rather a people, the whole Bethlehem community, who are too preoccupied with their own interests to take, at least yet, an interest in her, the outsider. And Ruth stays by her side. Listen, part of the evidence that a real experience of God's grace has gripped Ruth and her life is this. She still has needs, spiritual needs, social needs, physical needs, psychological needs. But whether those needs are being fully met right now, or whether they're being met in pleasant ways for her right now, she knows that she has her Lord, and she has her Lord's covenant love, what we said last week, her, the Lord's hesed, the loyalty of the love of God with her. And this means that she can put up with being ignored a little bit. She can tolerate not being introduced. She can deal with the grumblings and even the depression and the anxiety of the people in her new community. She's willing to commit to people who are, let's face it, a bit of a mess. And when you and I have a real experience of God's grace in our lives, you and I no longer expect the people in our church family to be the best possible versions of themselves all the time, do we? Instead, you begin to trust that the same God who has shown you grace and patience is also at work in other people's lives. Patiently, graciously, God's grace makes you patient and gracious with difficult and messy people like all of us really are. And so the question for you is, who are the Naomi's for you in our fellowship, in your life? And what are you going to do to Let's make a verb out of her name, shall we? What are you going to do to Ruth these Naomi's? How are you going to mirror the committed grace and patience of the Lord Jesus Christ to these people in your life? How are you going to exude the confidence that if they are in Christ, they won't always be bitter? The confidence that if they are in Christ, their most pleasant days are always ahead of them. Always for eternity. 
And so here's your homework. If I see you at the train station in a couple of weeks, or if I bump into you at Migro, and I ask you, so have you got yourself a couple of Naomi's? And are you roofing them? Your answer can be to me, yes, and yes, with the help of God. Okay? So Naomi creates a stir, and thankfully she has Ruth by her side, who's going to commit to her. Even though she doesn't say anything in this passage, she's there demonstrating the steadfastness, the hesed of her covenant God. So they create a stir. Uh, Ruth stirs the pot. And finally, though, in our passage, believe it or not, there is a stirring of hope. And you might be wondering, where? I don't see it. Where is this stirring of, of hope in this sad passage? There's actually several that I could point out, and we only have time for two. So let me give you two. Number one, as soon as Naomi begins to talk about Mara, about bitterness, our hopes should be stirred. Why? Well, the first readers of this story would have had their hopes stirred when they heard her start talking Mara, Mara, because... We've already seen Mara in our Bibles before, in Exodus chapter 15. You have the discouraged and suffering Israelites that have just recently come out of Egypt and out of uh, Pharaoh's slavery. And they're on their way from Egypt toward their new home, but they're thirsty. And they've come to a place at last that has water. And they go to drink it, and guess what? It's bitter, and they cannot drink it. It's Mara. And so they call that place Mara. And then what do they do? They grumble and they complain. Because the Lord, they say, is after us. He's out to afflict us. He's not for us. He's against us. And they lose sight of his covenant promises and his deliverance for a moment. But then what happens? Why does this give us hope? Because instead of sending them back to Egypt... Instead of judging them for grumbling and complaining, what does the Lord do? Out of pure, undeserved grace, the Lord turns that bitter, that Mara water into sweet, pleasant Naomi water, if you like. And then, as if that weren't enough, just up the road is even more refreshment for these pilgrim people. The Lord provides them a place with 12 springs of water that they can drink from, and 70 palm trees under which they can get shade from the scorching sun. Naomi cannot see that Ruth, standing right next to her, is her sweet gift from her God. Naomi can't yet see that something even more pleasant than 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees are for her just up the road ahead. But... By God's grace, it's there. And if you've cheated and read ahead, you know what this refreshment is. But here's the takeaway for you. When you are a child of the one true God, the time of bitterness and dryness that you might go through will not last forever. It cannot last forever. There is the promise of sweet, holy water just up the road for you. There are times of refreshment ahead. There is pleasant shade. There is a breeze from God's spirit. Sooner or later, 
if you keep walking by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. And we don't deserve this kind of refreshment that pulls us out of our bitterness and out of our sorrow, do we? We don't deserve this sweetness, this rest, whether there's a bit of it here on earth or whether we have to wait till the fullness of it in glory. We don't deserve it because we are bitter, because we grumble, because in our bitterness, we think and a lot of times we say all kinds of things about our good Lord that are not true of him. But here's the thing, and this is how grace works. If he has committed to refresh you with himself, then you will be refreshed. It's his gift. Just this week, appropriately enough, I found out that Julian of Norwich, a 17th, I guess you would say Norwich, right? The 14th century uh, English Christian mystic is actually not a man, but was a woman. And that was pleasant to hear. Anyway, this famous mystic woman famously declared something that every Christian knows to be true. These beautiful words. Are you ready? All shall be well. All shall be well. And all manner of things shall be made well. And so do you believe that despite your sin, despite your grumbling spirit, by God's grace, all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be made well. Do you believe that every bit of God's grace comes through Jesus' blood? Well, then guess what? You believe the gospel. You believe the gospel. That's stirring of hope number one. Here's number two. I couldn't help but give you two. They're just so good. The second thing is that in our short passage in the first chapter of Ruth, the word return in Hebrew pops up 12 times. And I think this must be significant. Six of these returns have to do with a return to Moab. Six of them have to do with a return to the promised land, to Bethlehem. And then the whole thing concludes in verse 22 with Naomi and Ruth doing what? Returning to Bethlehem just when at the beginning of the barley harvest. And this is as if the narrator sticks this note in here. It's the beginning of the barley harvest. Just to keep us turning the pages. I mean, we would abandon this book and say, this is just too depressing for me. I'm not going to read chapter two. But just as they return the barley harvest begins. Take away. Look, no matter how much it seems at times like the Lord's hand might be against us, we can look at what the Lord Jesus has done for us, what the Lord Christ has done, and we can say with confidence, he will return. He will return. The beginning of the harvest has already begun. There will be a big feast once this difficult work is through. So however much of a stir it might create when someone around you has an awful experience of sorrow, however much someone might stir the pot with their bitter words, however often someone inside or outside of our Christian fellowship might say to you, where is your God now? Why do you have such foolish hope? Where is this Jesus that you say you trust in? 
remember that there was, at the time of Ruth and Naomi's return, a stirring of hope, the promise of the Lord's return. In the days of famine, there was the beginning of a barley harvest. In the the years when the judges judged, and there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes, the seeds of an eternal kingdom were planted there in the promised lands, and a first fruits sprung up from the dry ground. So when, like Naomi, you cannot look out down the road or down the halls of time and see the harvest coming, when you can't see the feast at the end of the harvest, when you can barely see growth, much less the first fruits of a harvest, keep your eyes on the Lord Jesus because he is the Lord of the harvest. Remember that he has walked the same dusty road as Naomi. He has gotten the same Judean dirt under his sandals as she had. And remember that, she, that he has suffered even greater losses than hers. That he himself went all the way even to the grave to suffer for our sake. But he returned, didn't he? First, gloriously, to life again. And then he returned where? To heaven and sat down at the, heaven, at the heavenly throne next to his father and ours. And he has promised that he will return once again to judge the quick and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. The first fruits of what will be his final return are already for us so astounding that they should fill us with unquenchable hope, hope that won't disappoint. The joy of the harvest will be so great, and it will be. We'll be able to say at the end of our experience that there's no point in comparing the sorrows and the tears that we've had with the joy that has now overwhelmed us at the feast, at the end of the promised harvest. In Christ, the psalmist says, we may sow in sorrow. We will sow with tears. But we shall reap in joy. So the question for all of us today is, is Jesus for you, the Lord of the joyful harvest. Make him the Lord of the joyful harvest for you. And look to him always. Gracious God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your faithful servants ahead of us, especially this morning for Ruth. Thank you for giving her a bit of that covenant love and loyalty that Naomi so desperately needed and that we so desperately need. Thank you that our Lord Jesus is a Ruth to us, and even better, that he sticks by our side when we grumble, that he brings us all the way home to glory, and that he has gone through death and out the other side and gives us eternal life. Help us to put our trust in him, and help that trust to bubble over into joy, even in the midst of our sorrows so that the people around us would ask us over and over again, what is the reason for the hope that you have in the midst of all this sorrow? Give this fresh experience of your grace to us each and to us as a church, and we will be the Lord's most faithful servants. We ask this for his name's sake and for our good. Amen.